Kia ora, I'm Anne O'Brien, Director of the Auckland Writers' Festival, and you're listening to the session podcast Democracy from our 2018 programme. Democracy in its Crisis is the latest book from the leading British intellectual A.C. Grayling. In it, he traces democracy's birth in ancient Greece up to its bastardisation in the 21st century. Grayling delivers a lecture supported by Craig's investment partners on current political low points and the pressing need for reform. We hope you enjoy it. Kia ora tato. Welcome to this session as we near the end, or not quite, there's a few things to go yet, of the first public day of the Auckland Writers' Festival. It's been a tremendous day so far, some wonderful speakers, and I can assure you that you're in for a treat coming up as well. So just to let you know a few things about how this is going to run, I am just going to do a brief introduction. Uh, Professor AC Grayling will come to the stage, he's going to speak to you for around 40-45 minutes and then he will take questions from the floor. There are microphones placed at the front of the aisles here and halfway up and there is also two microphones on both the circle and the balcony because we have about 1700 people in. So when it comes to question time, if you wish to ask a question, please bring yourselves down and queue in front of the microphones and he will take your questions in order. Uh, I want to acknowledge Craig's Investment Partners, one of our wonderful family of uh, supporters who are supporting this session this evening. Uh, AC Grayling doesn't really need too much introduction. He is a public intellectual from Britain, a deep thinker, and an extraordinary communicator. And in times where life is complex and sometimes bewildering, the subject that he's going to talk to us about this evening is, has never been more important. He has a raft of books. After the session, many of them are on sale out there in the lobby and you can meet him and speak to him at the signing table. But of course the book that he's here to speak about this evening uh, is his most recent book, Democracy and Its Crisis. Please welcome to the stage Professor A.C. Grayling. Thank you. Thank you very much indeed. Well, this being a, a literary festival, uh, you will all have very uh, close in memory the wonderful and very funny fifth chapter of uh, Our Mutual Friend by Charles Dickens. You remember that what happens in that, in that chapter is that uh, Mr. Boffin, the millionaire rubbish collector, uh, has decided that uh, he wants an education. He's never learned to read, so he's looking for somebody to read to him. And he finds Silas Wegg, the one-legged um, street vendor, who can read. And he asks him, he says to him, I'd like to make you an offer, will you come and read to me? Silas Wegg says, yes. He says, have you got uh, a book? And Mr. Boffin says, I have, I bought one today, five volumes, and it's, it's got a blue cover. You know it, don't you? And Silas says, well, no, what's the title? And, and Mr. Boffin says, it is The Decline and Fall of the Russian Empire. <laughs> Turns out to be in The Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire. But he says to Silas Wegg, he says, uh, have you read it? And Silas Wegg says, well, I haven't been right slap bang through it lately, which is at least, was at least honest of him. So now I, I cite that story because I know that you here are very unlikely to have been right slap bang through the collected works of Plato recently, but I do know that you will remember the greatest, uh, and perhaps in its way the best known of Plato's dialogues, The Republic. And in book eight of The Republic, Plato talks about the different kinds of government there can be, beginning with the one that he most prefers, which he calls a, 
an aristocratic government. Do you remember that in ancient Greek, talk about aristocrats wasn't talk about people who'd inherited their titles from their grandparents, but um, it meant rule by the best. And he thought that the best were philosophers. Now, this is one thing that I do agree with Plato about, that things should be run by philosophers. But then he goes through the other forms of government, and he comes to, to, to the second worst form of government, democracy, which he really didn't like at all. In fact, he thought democracy was just a concealed form of ochlocracy. That's a wonderful word, ochlocracy, O-C-H. It means mob rule. He thought the, the problem with putting political authority into the hands of the demos, of the people, was to put it into the hands of people who were insufficiently well-informed, who were too short-termers, too self-interested, uh, had such a wide diversity of desires and interests that they would always be in conflict with one another. The result would just be tumult, anarchy. And the point about anarchy is that it's a very exhausting situation to be in. You can't get anything done, and pretty soon, a strong man or a strong woman, somebody will step in and take over and people will be living under a tyranny. He thought democracy was just the vestibule to tyranny. So he gave it a bad name, such a bad name indeed that it took more than 2,000 years before anybody thought that democracy could be a good thing. Interestingly, I think it's just 101 years since a major world statesman gave democracy uh, the seal of approval. That was Woodrow Wilson, 2017, in 1917, when he was explaining to his people in the United States of America why he was taking the US into the First World War. And he said it was to defend democracy. That was the first time that the word was really used on a major international stage as a kind of feel-good word. As you know, America has been uh, transporting its troops around the world to defend democracy ever since. Not always with um, good outcomes. But this idea that, that democracy was something which is good and desirable and, and worth defending, worth going to war for, was really quite a novel idea. The word democracy was still a bad enough word, even at the end of the 18th century, early 19th century, that some of the early presidents of the new United States of America not long after it had been founded, said that democracy was just another word for anarchy or chaos. And indeed, the sentiment uh, of Plato that really it, it just means you know, tumult, it just means chaos and disorganization, and the reason why it is that, namely the lack of information, the short-termism, the self-interest, and so on, was a view that many have uh, held since Plato's time, indeed right up into our own time. Everybody knows that Churchill said democracy is the least bad of a lot of bad systems, but he also said the strongest argument against democracy is a few minutes' conversation with any voter. And he was really <laughs> just reprising Plato's point. In fact, that, that point is even better put by the American satirist H.L. Mencken, who said to believe in democracy is to believe that uh, collective wisdom will emerge from individual ignorance. And this, of course, is something which is most, most amusingly uh, encapsulated by uh, a remark made by Adlai Stevenson. Does anybody here remember Adlai Stevenson? Very, very intellectual senator in the United States who ran against, uh, oh, state governor, perhaps he was, who ran against Eisenhower for the presidency in 1952 and again in 1956. 
And because he was very intellectual, rather reserved, he, he didn't have much public charisma. But somebody said to him one day, Mr. Stevenson, every thinking person in America is going to vote for you. And he said, I'm pleased to hear it, but I need a majority. <laughs> oh, this was, this was it just, just Plato all over again, exactly the same, same point of view. Now, here's the interesting thing, that this, this uh, skepticism that people have about putting the ultimate source of political authority into the hands of the people, given these rather condescending, rather lofty, rather patronizing views about the people, misses the point entirely of democracy. Misses the point entirely. In order to get that point, you have to go back to a moment in 1647 in the Putney debates. Now, you may remember the English Civil War was uh, in that year in a sort of lull. Uh, Charles I had been defeated at the Battle of Naseby and he'd been put into, into house arrest at Hampton Court. Not a bad place to be under house arrest. And the new model army of Cromwell had met at this little village outside London, as it then was, called Putney, to have a discussion about what next, next steps. And of course, the soldiers of the new model army just risked their lives to get themselves out from underneath what they thought of as a tyrannical monarchy. They wanted a new constitutional settlement. They wanted biennial parliaments and universal adult male suffrage, of course, male suffrage. They wanted uh, um, weaker powers for the House of Lords, stronger powers for the House of Commons, independent judiciary. Indeed, things that we would nowadays take for granted and perhaps want more of. But at that time, this was very novel and it was revolutionary. And Cromwell and Arch and Fairfax, the leaders of the new model army, weren't one bit interested in uh, conceding to these sorts of demands. In their view, the only people who were entitled to choose the government were people who had a real vested interest in the welfare of the community. And that meant people who owned property. If you have property, you're going to want good government because you want to look after your property. They were not interested in giving the vote to people who didn't have property, because what were people going to do uh, with their vote? They were going to vote to take away the property of the people who had it and give it to themselves. So the Cromwell wasn't interested in that at all. And in fact, in just a couple of years, after the Putney debates, some of the leaders of the Levellers movement, as they were called, were arrested and some indeed were executed. But there was a moment in that debate when one of the representatives of the army putting forward these new demands, said something which absolutely captures the essence of democracy. There's a man called Colonel Rainborough, and he, he said in response to this point that uh, Cromwell and Ayrton made about property being the qualification you needed to have a vote, he stood up and he said, the poorest he in England, he might have said the poorest he and she, the poorest he in England has as much right to a voice in choosing the government and the laws under which he will live as the richest he. And that captures the essence of the idea of democracy. It doesn't matter whether you have property or whether you're educated or what your, your, your DNA is or anything, but being a citizen of a state by itself, just in virtue of that fact, gives one a right to a voice. Because one is going to live under the government, under the laws of that state. And to do so voluntarily, to do so with your consent, is surely a key to how uh, one participates in the life of that society. 
So Rainborough had absolutely nailed it. That is the essence of democracy. And everything else, Plato and Mencken and Adlai Stevenson and Churchill said, is not, neither here nor there. But Plato and the others did have a little point to, to make at the back of their remarks. Leave aside the fact that the remarks are very condescending and so on, and, and think what it is that they had in mind when they expressed their anxiety about what would happen if just everybody had a say. They were worried about the fact that you wouldn't get good enough government. And that means, by implication, that there is another right that people have, not just a right to a voice, but also a right to good enough government. By the way, I use that phrase, good enough government, rather than good government, because as you know, outside uh, Auckland, New Zealand, there is nothing in this world which is perfect. So we have to accept <laughs> that there is going to be uh, a restraint on uh, just how well governments might function. Sometimes they'll be better, sometimes worse. But at the minimum, they should be good enough to protect our civil liberties, to protect our interests, to make it possible for each individual member of the society to live and to act and to choose in ways that seem good to them and which will lead to a life worth living, a flourishing and satisfying kind of life. A context, in other words, in which we as individuals, in our relationships with one another, in our friendships, our loves, our families, and in our ambitions, can seek and have a realistic chance of flourishing. So we have a right to a voice, but we also have a right to good enough government. So somehow or other, we've got to get from that right that everybody has, granting that there are going to be many differences of opinion and lots of different interests and lots of conflicts of interest, get from there to a good enough government. And in fact, it's very, very interesting that from that moment in Putney, in the middle of the 17th century, a debate began to unfold over the next couple of hundred years in which an idea was worked out about how you could get from that one right to that other right. And the idea in question, and I know you were all reading John Locke in bed last night, The Second Treatise of Government. You remember what he had to say there about the idea of the consent of the people, of having uh, institutions which are representative of the interests of the people even though in 1688, the end of the 17th century, of course, very, very few people had the vote. But nevertheless, Locke had recognized that even if the consent of the people was only given implicitly by their acceptance of the laws and by their uh, preparedness to live under the government of the day, that there was something voluntary about their participation in the life of the society. But assuming that uh, passive consent is enough wasn't enough. And so people like Montesquieu, the founders of the United States of America, especially people like Jefferson and Madison and Hamilton, who wrote uh, a great deal about the idea of what these new institutions should be like and how they should be operated. Benjamin Constant in France, after the Napoleonic Wars were over. Um, the Alexis de Tocqueville, with his study of the emerging democracy, the Jacksonian democracy in America. And then John Stuart Mill, in his wonderful book, Representative Government, published in the early 1860s, just as the franchise uh, was being yet further extended in, in uh, Britain. All of them were contributing to this debate, this uh, uh, effort to provide an answer to the question, how do you get from the right to have a say to the right to have good enough government? 
And the idea they came up with was the idea of representative democracy, where the adjective representative is key. A representative democracy. Let me give you a contrast. Right? There's some people think uh, about direct democracy on the model, let us say, of uh, the Athenian democracy of the fifth century BC, the Periclean democracy, where the um, enfranchised citizens, that is adult males, uh, who were genuine citizens of the city, not foreigners or visitors or slaves or women or children, but uh, adult males, could get together in the agora, in the marketplace, could discuss, could listen to argument, and could vote. So direct democracy. I suppose the analog of that in our present world might be a system like the one in Switzerland, where there are lots and lots of referendums. And they, uh, governments of the different cantons that, which make up the federal structure of Switzerland have to consent as well, of course, as the people who vote in the referendums. But that is a kind of analog, I suppose, in a way of a direct democracy. You notice something interesting about Switzerland, and that is that these very frequent democracy, uh, uh, referendums have very low turnouts, and they result in very, very conservative policies. And this is because people don't read the detail of the laws that are being proposed, or they don't participate because they get bored with voting all the time. And in any case, uh, there is a natural propensity among people to preserve a status quo. So if you keep on asking people questions, you get more and more conservative responses to them. So that's a, a contrast, a more direct democratic system to the representative system. But the representative system which was worked out by those thinkers I've mentioned, is the one which is uh, embodied in the Westminster model, of which, by the way, the United States of America is a, a, a kind of example. So what is meant by representative democracy? Well, the key idea there is we vote to send a representative to the legislature, to parliament or to the Congress in Washington, as it might be, and what we mean by a representative is not a delegate, not a messenger, not somebody who goes just to report what the people in his or her constituency or district want, but to go to the capital and to get information, to become informed, to listen to debate and argument, to discuss, to explore ideas, to work out with others what would be in the best interests of constituents and of the country, and to use that judgment in the interests of the country. Get the facts, debate, listen to argument, form a judgment. That is what a representative does. We send them to do a job of work on our behalf. I suppose the analogy is with uh, sending people to be trained as uh, doctors and dentists or lawyers and so on, so that um, a more technical or more difficult or challenging set of problems can be properly addressed and dealt with. So we send representatives to become informed and to do some thinking and debating. We don't send them there, as I say, just to convey our preferences. Now, this, in the ideal, would be a system that succeeded in taking the consent of the people into good enough government because we've appointed people to go and do a job of work on our behalf while we pursue our careers and look after our families and enjoy our leisure. Somebody, we hope, 
be acting responsibly. And if they don't, and if we don't like what they do, we don't like the judgments they form and the actions they take, we can kick them out. We vote them out at the next election. We put somebody else in who is better. That's the ideal. That's how it's meant to work. But as the franchise has been extended, as these institutions have uh, uh, taken a much firmer, more definite shape over the last couple of centuries. So people who have an agenda, people who want the country to be run a certain way, who want to realize certain aims, certain political and economic objectives, have learned how to game that system. They've learned how to operate those institutions. They've learned how important it is, as the franchise has been extended more and more widely, more and more people have the vote, that they need to have more and more control over the political process that uh, uh, inhabits those institutions. And one of the results of that has been that the party political system itself has come to be anti-democratic. It has come to work against the democratic interests of, of people in a way that I will describe in a moment. That's point number one. Point number two is that because of that political process, because of the party political system, it has become in increasingly important for uh, political agendas that the people who operate those institutions, the MPs, the congressmen and women in America, and the MPs here in, in Whitehall, should be very, very much under the control of the leadership of their parties. They should vote as the party needs them to vote. In fact, uh, I don't know whether you call it uh, the, the, this here, but in um, both Washington and in, especially in Whitehall in London, the system is known as the whipping system. This is where the whips, the people in charge of party discipline, ensure that the uh, vote is as the party leaders want it to be. And you can see immediately, if you just give a couple of minutes thought to that, that the whipping system means that if you're an MP, what you are representing is your party line. Not necessarily your constituents or your country. If the party line happens to be a particularly partisan one, and it will almost certainly be because it's at very best or at most only going to represent the interests of about half the country. The other problem is that when the, this, this system, the so-called Westminster system, emerged uh, out of the um, uh, history of the 17th and 18th century, the idea of a, of a vote was rather simplistically regarded. The so-called first-past-the-post voting system, which you here in New Zealand got rid of just recently with your mixed-member system that you have now, although you still have a first-past-the-post element to it. And it's very, very easy to see that that system is a terrible system. Imagine this. Imagine a constituency of 100 people, and 10 people stand for election, eight of whom get 10 votes each, one of whom gets nine votes, and the last gets 11 votes. Who goes to Parliament? The person who gets 11 votes. Because the first past the post, it's a mere plurality of the vote that selects the candidate. So 11 votes are represented in Parliament, and the other 89 are not. And this is uh, just a, merely a dramatized version of the actualities. In the UK, there are very, very few MPs who get more than 50% of the vote in their constituencies. They, generally speaking, are elected on 35 or 40%. So they don't 
actually represent the people in their constituency, and the people who didn't vote for them are unrepresented altogether. So there's another reason, another distortion in the way that these uh, institutions, which are meant to be representative, cease to be representative. Now, we are familiar with the fact that uh, politics is a difficult game for politicians. As you know, all political careers end in failure. And the reason for that is that uh, however idealistic you are and starry-eyed and however much you want to make your country great again and so on, what you're going to do is you're going to make this group of people fed up because you've helped that group of people. Then you're going to make that group of people fed up because you helped that group of people until eventually you've made everybody fed up. So if you go on long enough in politics, you will end in failure. The only way to be a successful politician is to take your, your example from the poets and die young. Wouldn't be too unkind to say that uh, J.F. Kennedy was uh, an example of that. This is because politics is quite difficult. Think of it. In the UK, um, there, there's one prime minister and there are about 25 cabinet ministers, and there are 650 MPs. So how are you going to get to the very top of that greasy pole unless you're pretty firmly attached to the buttocks of the person just above you on that pole? <laughs> And that means that you're going to do what politicians almost always do, which is they compromise and they temporize and they start telling half-truths or untruths. And eventually, of course, uh, we, um, ordinary folk, we, we start to get rather skeptical about politics and politicians and about the political process. All the more so when we realize that uh, uh, our, our political order is a very partisan order. It's always captured by one or another group or grouping in our legislature forming the government. And the government, at most and at best, is only really working on behalf of something like a half or less of the people who vote. And so we become skeptical. Now, the really great difficulty, the reason why these uh, democracies that we are, have been in the past half proud of and half skeptical about because of, of the politicians. These difficulties, those temporizings, those untruths, those, that spin, the propaganda that politicians use, all very familiar to us. But all that in recent years has become weaponized and in a way which is extremely dangerous even to the rather tenuous democratic order which has emerged out of this thinking over the last few hundred years but which has been gamed and, and to some extent manipulated by the politicians themselves. All that in just the last 10, 15, 20 years has become increasingly vulnerable to this weaponization that I want to explain to you now. It is the result of the fact that we, in our enthusiasm for social media and the internet, have exposed ourselves in complete nakedness to the view of any public or private agency that might be interested in our endeavors. Let me explain. You know that if you go on Google or you use WhatsApp or Facebook or whatever, you know that um, uh, your use of these uh, services is not free. Of course, you're not paying any money for them, but you're paying for access to these services with your private data. You're handing over your life and your life story and everything that you do every day to these services so they can use them to make money out of them. Principally, of course, uh, for advertisers. You know that uh, um, uh, they profile you, these services, 
In fact, they profile you with such incredible accuracy that they know more about you than you know about yourself. And they can target advertising at you with great accuracy. A friend of mine came over to London a few weeks ago from New York, and he told me that he had put into his Google Calendar uh, an outpatient appointment that he had at a hospital in Manhattan. And for the next three days, he was bombarded with advertisements from his local crematorium. Well, <laughs> this is an example of how these algorithms are really keeping a track of, of everything that you're doing. Now, you see, you laugh, but he's a man of a certain age. He's, uh, he's uh, had a few appointments for the same thing at the same place over the last uh, year or two. The algorithm says, hello, here's somebody who needs to know about his local crematorium. Well, that's how very closely he's being monitored. And this is happening to all of us. You are profiled so that the adverts that you get will be the ones that your algorithm thinks you'd be interested in. But did you know this? When you go on Google to look for a piece of information, maybe you want to know who is the fourth wife of Henry VIII. The information you get will be information that Google thinks you would like on the basis of your profile. You don't get the information. You get the information that Google thinks you would like on the basis of your profile. That means that there is an enormous amount of data out there about you personally. Now, now that we've, we've spotted that, we can think about the nature of big data analytics. Big data analytics is the use of hundreds of millions of data points which can be surveyed to see the patterns that, that uh, are present in the data. In the natural sciences, this is a wonderfully powerful and informative tool. Imagine uh, epidemiology. Imagine that there is a, a, a plague spreading across uh, the, our planet. Well, by examining the, the data, um, crunching this information with very, very powerful uh, um, computer technologies, one is able to learn an enormous amount about those patterns and can respond to them. So as you can see, this is a, a wonderful tool. But when it is used in order to track patterns of behavior and choice when it comes to things like elections, a slightly different story emerges. So let me tell you what happened in the case of the Trump election in 2016 and the EU referendum in Britain, the Brexit referendum. Some of you here will, uh, by the way, know that uh, uh, when I say I I'm going to be very neutral about Brexit in the UK. And what I mean by that is I think it was an incredibly stupid, bloody idea, and we want to try and stop it. But at any rate, the, the, uh, uh, the, 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 the point about what happened in both those uh, cases was this. You might have seen the BBC Horizon program if it was broadcast here about the Trump election. The Trump election headquarters was in a high-rise in, in Texas somewhere, and uh, they showed the office where the headquarters was situated, and in the room next door was Facebook on one side, and in the room next door on the other side was a company called Cambridge Analytica. And Cambridge Analytica was using information that they had uh, acquired from Facebook to profile people and to group people uh, into uh, little targets for very, very carefully honed messaging. So they were able to group people who were interested in lower taxes, 
then another group of people interested or worried about immigration. Another group of people who wanted more freedom to buy more guns to shoot more people. So, so they, have, they, had, they were able to target lots of different groups to test messages on these groups until the messaging that they were hyper-targeting, that's the technical expression, micro-targeting or hyper-targeting, messaging to these groups because they knew by the metrics that they used to measure the success of the messaging that these groups were really responding. So I can target that group there with their particular messages, that group, that group, and eventually I can aggregate a whole lot of groups into a single voting block, into a block of people who would support my candidate or my uh, uh, line. Now it's very important to remember this. In any uh, election, any referendum, any presidential election, you've got two blocks of people who pretty well made up their minds. Clinton, Trump. They've made up their minds, they may even tune out of the election process because they're not really interested, they're not going to change their minds. But in between, there's a group of people who haven't made up their minds, or whose minds could be changed, or who are manipulable. And it's that group of people in between the two blocks who are being targeted by this hyper-targeting, who are being messaged uh, in a way that the people sending the messages know have a very good chance of hooking them into the line that you want them to follow. Because if you can move just enough people in that central group, one way or the other, you can tip things, you can tip things over into the direction that you want them to go. Most elections, almost all indeed, are won on very, very small margins. Very small numbers of people make the difference in the outcome. Let me give you an example. In the case of the EU referendum, there was a lot of messaging. You know, people were identified as having certain concerns, as it might be about immigration or something. They were targeted with messages suggesting that uh, leaving the EU would solve their problem for them. The messaging also, by the way, was targeted at uh, Remainers, people who wanted to stay in the EU. And the message to them was, nobody is stupid enough to vote to leave the EU, so Remain is going to win very easily. So you don't have to vote. If it's rainy on the day of the election, you don't have to bother to go out because Remain's going to win easily anyway. It's a very significant uh, point, that, because on the day of the referendum in London, it rained very heavily all day long. By the way, that's been known to happen in London. Well, there was a, cephologists, uh, uh, people who are students of, uh, of voting behavior can tell you that if it rains in a constituency on the day of the vote, you can predict with great accuracy the drop in the turnout, the number of people who don't want to get their feet wet on, on a rainy day. You can predict it. And in the case of the EU referendum, the drop in the turnout in London alone was bigger, the margin was bigger than the margin by which Leave won the vote. So you can see that targeting people by saying, Remain's going to win very easily, it gave people confidence that if they didn't go out to vote, it wouldn't make a difference. Pretty well the same kind of thing happened with the Trump. They targeted uh, pro-Trumpers, you know, people worried about uh, immigrants and so on. They targeted Hillary voters by sending messages about uh, you know, how suspicious uh, uh, Hillary was. And they were able to get enough people to move in the right places. really extraordinary thing about the Trump election is that Trump got more than three million votes fewer than Hillary Clinton got. She won over three million more votes than, than Trump. But he got the right votes in the right place to win the electoral college. 
The Electoral College, by the way, in the United States, exists to ensure that nobody who is an idiot, who is a harasser of women, who is a, I'm sorry, will ever become president. As you can see, it's working very well. So this, this, uh, this new technique, this powerful weapon of using data harvested from, from social media and using it to influence and manipulate the vote has now, as I say, weaponized that business of spin and propaganda and half-truths uh, that uh, have always been there, but are now much, much more potently used. And this, of course, dramatically undermines the point of representative democracy. Last autumn, the um, Nobel Prize for Economics was won by a person who introduced into economic theory the idea of nudging. The nudge, the little influence, drip by drip, just making people think one way or making people think another way, influencing behavior little by little with advertising or messaging or repetition of, uh, of slogans. I was talking to a member of the Australian security forces uh, last uh, um, uh, year, uh, back in October, uh, September, October there. He was telling me that uh, part of his responsibility was cybersecurity. And this relates to the fact that most major countries in the world, not just Russia, although Russia is a big player in this respect, are constantly trying to get messaging out into cyberspace, into the social media space, to influence or nudge people to think a certain way, either for or against something, more in favor of Russia, less in favor of the United States, whatever the propaganda target happens to be and that this is going on all the time. He says it's almost like warfare out there in, in cyberspace, P people attempting to interfere or to message uh, or to influence. And in the case of the Trump election, in the case of the EU referendum, this happened uh, big time. Now this is going to continue to happen. This is going to be a feature of our lives now that we have uh, the internet and, and social media. We've all kind of tacitly accepted that uh, anybody who wants to spy on us can do so. So we've given up our personal lives to the advertisers and the, and the propagandists. But given that it is going to happen, we need to do something to protect our interests as voters and to protect our democracies. And that thing is we should demand transparency. I don't mind somebody sending me messages and trying to persuade me to vote one way or another, providing I know who it is, providing I know why they're asking me to do it and who's paying for it. Then I can make up my own mind. But if I don't know they're doing it, if it's happening subtly, if I think I've got a, a, a message which has been forwarded by somebody I know from Roy in Neesden, and it turns out to have been Vladimir in Vladivostok who was trying to influence me, uh, and I don't know this fact, then I'm being manipulated, and that isn't right. That is a way of undermining our democracy. So we look at our voting systems, we look at the uh, party political system that we have now, the party machines that keep such a tight grip on, on MPs and, and make them vote the party line all the time. Now we look at a, a controversy such as you have here in New Zealand just at the moment, which I think you call waka jumping, this is this problem about people changing their party allegiance after an election. And the argument there is, oh, if you do that, it disturbs the representative balance of the, of the parliament or of the um, uh, confidence and supply arrangements that exist for a government. 
and it's directly contrary to the idea that each individual MP is a representative charged with the responsibility to get facts and do some thinking, and not merely to be lobby fodder for a party line. But that is what MPs have become over time, is mainly lobby fodder for a party line. And that, as I say, is undemocratic. Now, if you investigate the structures that have been built to try to take the consent of the people into good enough government, and if you look at the different ways in which people have learned how to manage those institutions and make them work for the benefit of a particular uh, a party, when you look at the voting systems that we use, and when you look now at the tremendous vulnerability of our electoral and political and governmental processes by this new powerful thing, which is the internet and social media, you have to ask yourself the question, what are we going to do about it? And the answer is, we have to put into place constitutional, clear, clear constitutional arrangements which ensure transparency and ensure that the fundamental principles that underlie the very idea of a representative democracy are protected from this gaming, this manipulation, this use of the very instruments of what is meant to be a representative democracy against the interests of the people themselves whose consent underlies the authority of government. We need to be conscious of this because we are being presented with problems like the rise of populism. We've seen that in, in the United States of America. We've seen it in, in Europe. We've seen uh, a, a, a quite a dramatic movement uh, of uh, sentiment in ideas about what kinds of governments people could live under. Look at China, for example, with Xi, uh, President Xi there making himself, uh, positioning himself for presidency for life. Look at President Erdogan in Turkey. Look at Mr. Orban in Hungary. These, these movements are counter to a tendency which had been prevailing since uh, the middle of the 20th century. Since the end of the Second World War, the majority of countries in the world have either become democracies or pretended to become democracies. And this is because they looked at, at the United States, Canada, Western Europe, Australia, New Zealand. They looked at countries that were flourishing uh, and had uh, uh, open societies. And they thought to themselves, well, if we want to be rich and influential, that's the model, democracy. We must become democracies. Now, there is a quite different example for them, China. China has a rapidly growing economy. It's becoming a powerful regional hegemon. It's going to be a world superpower if it isn't already one. And it's done it on the basis of a one-party rule of an autocratic government with very, very little in the way of civil liberties and human rights in that country. And if you were the president of a developing country somewhere, let us say, in Africa, you could think to yourself, this country, my country, could be rich and powerful and we don't have to bother with elections and, and what have you. Democracy is very inefficient. And it's true, democracy is inefficient. And inefficiency is a very, very good thing because it protects our civil liberties. You know, if we all, well, remember um, 10 years ago, there was great debate about identity cards, biometric data identity cards, and the companies that said, we can produce biometric uh, data identity devices, doesn't have to be a card, it could be just a little dot, you could put it under the skin of your wrist, and it could be read by a, a police reader or in a shop, you could pay for everything with it and so on. This idea, very uh, convenient, 
There was a suggestion in the UK that there would be a central computer. Everybody would be linked to it, so everybody's data would be available on this centralized computer, health records, education record, bank details, and so on. I remember saying to a, a government minister at the time, as part of the campaign against it, I said, uh, what's the difference between a little dot under your, put under the skin of your wrist and a number branded on your arm? And he, who had a family who had uh, died in the Holocaust, was very outraged by that. He said, who the hell do you think we are? I said, ooh, well, I think you're very nice chaps, you know. But uh, the thing is, uh, what happens in 10 or 20 or 30 years' time when there aren't very nice chaps in government and they've got this powerful tool where they can know everything about everybody. At the moment, the people who know everything about everybody are mainly private agencies, Facebook and uh, Google and people like that. But it's very, very easy to corral all this information together, and therefore it's very easy to start becoming a bit paranoid and have conspiracy theories about this. But uh, alas, uh, th there is an instrument there which, as we see from what I said earlier, is already being used to control to influence, to manipulate to a significant extent our democratic processes, the way we are governed and our societies. And this is a moment, therefore, where we should sit up and take notice of this and do something about it. Demand transparency and demand also that the idea of representative democracy, which really is, because Churchill is right, really is the least bad of a lot of bad systems, is protected against these corrosions that these new developments are making. Now I want to end with a, um, a little anecdote about uh, the other thing which is e absolutely essential. As you know, in the ideal democratic order, the people who vote would be very well informed, very thoughtful, very altruistic, very mature-minded, very interested in the welfare of their fellow citizens. That is the utopian vision of what a, a flourishing democracy might be like. I would be realistic about that and say, well, there are going to be people who uh, are not particularly interested in, in their neighbors or people who are uh, a lot interested in getting well informed, but that doesn't deprive them of a right to a say, as I mentioned earlier. Therefore, to be realistic about this, we've got to see that the institutions must work well so that they work in the interests of everybody. Because democracy is not majoritarianism. It's not about what 51% say so that everybody else has got to fall into line. Because a, a, a good democracy is one which looks after everybody, takes account of all the interests of all the different groups. After all, every society is a collection of minorities. And so we have to be sure that the uh, democracy works in everybody's interests. But the idea of education, the idea of uh, a more thoughtful community, a more aware and a more uh, interested uh, community, interested in other members of the community and their rights, that is tremendously important. And in this age where everything that happens in cyberspace, on the internet, on social media, are so overwhelmingly influential in our lives, we need to become very good at navigating cyberspace and everything that there is there. I mean, look, it used to be the case in education that a teacher would download from his or her necktop computer to the necktop computers of all the little children in the classroom some information. Dates, formulae, bits of geometry, bits of history, geography, and so on. Well, nowadays, all that information, you can get it at the press of a button and the speed of light on a computer. So what people need now in education is to become very good at thinking 
critically and perceptively about the sort of information that they get or the claims that are made. People talk about critical thinking being really important in education. It's become such a cliche, but it is a really true cliche. It's very, very important to become good evaluators of what is said out there in this great noisy world of, of um, claims and counterclaims, uh, post-truth and falsehood and, and false facts. That Australian security person I mentioned earlier told me that a lot of the work done by the security services is monitoring these uh, uh, alleged news sites and discussion sites and blogs and opinion uh, locations on the internet because most people now get their news from those sources and most of those sources are very polluted. The post-truth world is a world of opinion and people are invested in their opinions and opinions are passed off as truth and so people have to be very, very good at evaluating it. And I always remind people of the story and I tell the story again and again because it is so illustrative of um, the uh, French philosopher Bernard-Henri Lévy, they've heard of him, very handsome fellow, he has flowing locks. It's not necessary to have flowing locks to be a philosopher, but he has them. <laughs> He's rather famous for his uh, sartorial style. He wears shirts open to his belly button. <laughs> Magnificent hairy chest. I once said to him, Bernard, why do you wear your shirt open to your belly button? And he said, and I quote, because I'm hot. Anyway, <laughs> he published a book some years ago, in which he quoted an unknown thinker of the French Enlightenment by the name Botul, B-O-T-U-L, only to discover when the book was in print and in the bookshops that there is no such person. This individual was made up by a joker on the internet, and Bernard would have noticed this if he had further noticed that Mr. Botul's theory was Botulism, which, <laughs> as you know, might make you philosophical, but it isn't a philosophy. So he was asked on television, oh, Bernard, how could you possibly not check? This is on the internet. Everybody knows that the internet is a great realm of falsehood and, and you know, pranksters and rubbish and nonsense. How could you not check? And he said, oh, you know, what he says is good, so I quote him. It doesn't matter if he exists or not. Well, that's okay. You know how things are in France. They say, well, it works in practice, but does it work in theory? You know, sort of thing. Well, the idea that... Um, that, that uh, uh, somebody as distinguished as uh, Bernard-Henri Lévy didn't check when he went on the internet is a very telling fact. We all do this. We look at the information which is on page one of Google. But really, we should be very critical. And we should be very critical because our democracy, and our democracy means us, our lives, our taxes, the way our country works, the way our country relates to other countries, that this is something which is very vulnerable, vulnerable to manipulation in that new world, the cyber world it, that we all live in now. So we need to protect our, our democracy. It is at a, at a crisis point, and the evidence for that is what has happened in the last couple of years in Trump's America and in Brexit Britain. Those two things would not have happened if our democracies had been working properly. That is a claim that I make in the book, Democracy and Its Crisis, more detail, more argument for it there, but it's one which uh, I'm very, very happy indeed to defend against any questions or challenges that you would now like to offer me. Thank you very much.
Thank you. Thank you very much. You've been listening to a podcast from the 2018 Auckland Writers' Festival. You can find a range of other festival talks, interviews and discussions on iTunes and SoundCloud and on our website, writersfestival.co.nz.